0: Welcome to the short term rental pros podcast, knowledge, experiences, and actionable takeaways from those who are killing it with short term rentals. Here's your host, Jeremy Warden. We are live with the short term rental pros podcast. And today I am with the king of short term Twitter, short term rental Twitter himself mr jones taylor jones how are you doing man and uh yeah tell us how'd you how'd you become the the king of uh short-term rental twitter
1: well thank thank you for the kind intro i actually got started a couple years ago posting about me and my wife's personal journey in short-term rentals we had a couple cabins up in the blue ridge mountains and to me i just wanted to share the experience i started posting every day talking about our wins our losses our struggles and when you show up every day, uh, some magic happens, and all of a sudden, the following started growing. It continued to build, and I just like woke up and you know had tens of thousands of followers, and it's it's become something I would have never expected two years ago.
0: Yeah, and you also your your day job is um, you help run a short term rental investment fund. So yeah, TechFest. tell tell us about that. And I want to get so I'm actually talking to Sabrina later today who. Is uh, one of Taylor's uh, colleagues at Techfester as well as Cif, uh, another one, John Bianchi, who I've had on multiple times, works at Techfester So this is a Short Term Rental Pro podcast. The fact that I'm having four people in one company on really shows just how good they are at this game. Uh, but what is Techfester What do you do for them? And um, yeah, how, what what have you? What's your experiences the last few been growing such an insanely massive portfolio?
1: Yeah. So I run the acquisitions team. And so what we're doing is we're constantly looking at properties to acquire. We're looking at the data. We're underwriting. We're sourcing constantly, trying to find what's the best product to buy in our core markets. First of all, what is is
0: TechFester? Just uh, just at a high level for those who don't know.
1: Yeah. So we're a short-term rental investment fund. We allow people to passively invest with us we will pull that capital together, we'll buy properties, renovate them, design them, furnish them, operate them, and then split the cash flows with those investors. So it's a great way to get passive income. You get exposure to the asset class. So if you're looking to diversify your portfolio, but you don't wanna do any of the freaking work that comes with operating short-term rental, our team does all the work. We're gonna pull that capital together. We're gonna buy the properties, renovate them, design them, furnish them, operate them, and ultimately split the cash flows with the investors. From an investor standpoint, you get exposure to a diversified portfolio and you don't have to do any of the work, all the while sitting back and collecting a quarterly dividend uh, check. So it makes it a real passive experience while giving you exposure to a diversified portfolio of short-term rentals.
0: And how many have you got? Well, first of all, when did uh, when did TechVestor get started and how many properties have you acquired since then?
1: Yeah, we started two years ago. Uh, we've acquired over 130 in the last two years and are continuing to scale um, You know, over the next five to 10 years. So we'll continue to build our portfolio, uh, continue to have more investors come with us on this journey. And then ultimately, there will be some form of a liquidation event, whether that be via sale or via refinance. Um, that's what we're building towards.
0: And, and your role within TechFester is, you said, the head of acquisitions? That's correct. So that means, I mean, you're the one calling agents, uh, negotiating deals. Is that kind of what that entails?
1: Yeah, no, certainly. It's a looking at all across our core markets that we want to be in. So, you know, right now we're deep studying about thirty. We're currently in nine, and you know, it's looking at the inventory that comes online in those available markets. Looking at what's the best possible, you know, asset to buy talking to brokers, looking at the underwriting, assessing the data comps, making sure it fits our buy box, is the return profile something we would accept, you know, with us and our investors. And then ultimately if that's the case, we're going to place an offer and buy that property.
0: Got it. Okay, so you're you're checking the boxes essentially. You've got your criteria and I'm just going to be honest like at this point when I am setting up so I'm currently setting up a property and I've even posted this on my my Instagram uh, on my story. But I look at y'all's properties uh, for inspiration at this point. And uh, I think there was a period where John was like, "Oh, I looked at your properties for inspiration, and I felt good about myself." But now I feel just looking at your property, I'm just so insecure at, at all my properties at this point. The ones I set up two, three years ago, I'm like, "Damn, if I if I knew what I knew now, or if I just..." Had your guys' properties in mind when I was setting those up, they would look very different. I mean, they're very, very impressive. And uh, I think I saw someone's like tweet. I thought I thought it was pretty funny when interest rates were were at their highest. Uh, I think someone tweeted at you, "Hey, does uh, is there a correlation between interest rates and the number of amenities you have at your property? Because you just like every square inch of the properties you guys set up now are." are decked out with some sort of like something with listing appeal. So I guess, I know I'm not asking a specific question, but yeah, how do you, I mean, you guys are buying at a time when people are like scared, you know, they're scared to buy. Interest rates are high, short-term rentals are dead. How do you guys continually acquire and win in 2024?
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately what we're seeing is the markets we're going into, the strategy that we're executing is we're out designing and out amenitizing the, you know, uncle Bob common investor, you know, we're, we we do not play in the luxury space. Um, it's not something we want to compete in. Um, it would be a completely different thesis for us. We want to go compete against middle of the road, uncle Bob. And here's the thing when those people are designing or setting up their short-term rental, they're setting it up for themselves, which is a huge flaw us. We're not staying in our properties ever. It's specifically designed for our guest avatar. So if we're in an area that's promoting to families, we're all in on amenitizing for families. If it's a group of women for a bachelorette outing, we're all in on setting it up for women. If it's a dude's outing, same thing. We're going to be setting it up exactly for there. When we nail that guest avatar from a setup, from a design, from an amenity standpoint, that's what people want to book. They don't want to book, oh, my personal preference was white subway tile. It's my Airbnb. I come and use this once a year. Well, they set it up for themselves, not exactly for the guest avatar. It also goes to show too, when you talk about amenities, we're willing to spend that money up front because we know there's an ROI. The most common owner is not going to necessarily spend that money. If we see the value in putting in a pickleball court in the backyard, we're going to put a pickleball court in. If we think we can convert the garage into a golf simulator, which we have done, we're going to do it. If we're going to add miniature golf or a huge playground set or cornhole, bocce ball, soccer, whatever it might be, we're going to spend that money because we know the ROI is there. And so ultimately, when we're competing against middle-of-the-road investors who are setting this up for themselves as a second home, we're constantly winning, we're constantly driving more revenue, and ultimately driving more cash flow for us and our investors.
0: Yeah, and I, I actually uh, I uh, I was doing a like a live uh, live training the other day, and I was going. I'm I'm fully transparent. I operate my portfolio. I know, or we touched on a lot of uh, folk who post content out there aren't really in the weeds or don't actually operate their portfolios anymore. They kind of just you know talk about it or talk about the lifestyle aspect of things. Where I'm very much you know in the weeds and trying to improve every day and, and make my operations from a management perspective better, but also improve the setup. And uh, the, well, yeah, I was live uh, and I was talking about how in South Florida, you know, the Airbnb bus, whatever, I was giving the full transparent numbers on like my year over year data at different properties. And like most of my portfolio is like, maybe if we're down, like we're down, it might be down like a little bit, or there's some properties where I, you know, really improved them last year. Maybe added a hot tub, uh, maybe like kind of redesigned a little bit and they're actually doing better. But the one area where like my properties are like noticeably down is like probably the only area like where I kind of compete with you in <laughs> uh, that like South Florida area, which actually I feel, I actually initially was talking to Seif about like that area. Uh, and I think I introduced him to like a broker or something and he, he told me he started making offers. So I think I may have like self-sabotaged <laughs> myself there. Uh, but I was going through and I was like, yeah, just the properties in this area, like they've just, they've been leveled up. You know, the, the little, the mini putt-putt wasn't here before. And then I clicked on one. I was like, this one, for example, and psh, I saw Sabrina's face on it. I was like, damn it. <laughs> so-
1: yeah, it, it's something It's something that's happened. And, you know, for us, when we go into a lot of these non-high design, non-amenitized markets and bring the level that we bring, you instantly scale up what is considered table stakes to compete Um That's why we don't love markets that are already like highly cutthroat, the Joshua Trees, the Disneys. Um, It's really hard to differentiate and win. Now, yes, we're in Scottsdale, which you could also argue is in that same breath of high design, high competition, but we found a niche with those big resort-style backyards to win. It gives us that opportunity. So for us, we just love going to areas where the level of competition isn't at that peak, And we're going to come in and operate there and force everybody else to kind of step their game up to that level.
0: Yeah. And in order for you guys to go somewhere, you need to be able to do enough property. So I've kind of, I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I'm not expanding in that area anymore. Uh, I'm not going to say because you are, but there's just like the level has been, it's been taken to another level. Plus home prices have boomed in South Florida. And honestly, the whole insurance situation. I don't know about, I think you live in Florida
1: Uh,
0: or do you live in Florida? I do, I do. Bruh, we've we've had two consecutive years of insurance premium increases, and I can I can complain about Florida all day. Uh, <laughs> but but that being said, like I feel solace being in places where I know there's just not enough volume for you guys to come where it makes sense, uh, because you do need to like for you guys to operate in a place so, like you're not just looking to do one, two, three properties. Like you need to be able to do. 20, 30, 50 for it to make sense. Am I do I am I do I am I correct in that uh, in that assumption?
1: Yeah, no, I mean it's funny, people reach out and they're like, man, like I'm scared. If you guys are passing on the deal, then I shouldn't buy it. And I'm like, no, that's not necessarily the right choice because yeah, to your point, if we can't get at least 10, 12, 15 in a short amount of time, it doesn't make sense. And we've passed on markets where there is, you know, teen level returns, you know, very solid cash on cash opportunities, but we can't get density. We could buy one, two, three, and then we'd be stuck. And for us, at the scale that we operate, it just makes sense to go after density. There's way more levers we can pull from a operation standpoint, from a controlling expenses standpoint, from a driving revenue standpoint, vendor standpoint, any of these different opportunities. Scale matters for us. And so, yeah, we are passing on a lot of markets that a common investor could go rip one, go rip two. And still get a great return that we're just never going to go into because the inventory is not there, the density isn't there, whatever those factors might be.
0: So you guys listening, you're safe. You're safe from Taylor coming into your neighborhood and raising the level of competition. Uh, you know, to a place that you don't want it to be. Uh, you don't have to. You don't have to add the pickleball court and the and the <laughs> and the mini putt putt. But uh, yeah, I like people always. Start, I feel like talk to me about oh, what what happens when like the institutions come in, you know, like what happens when like the Blackstones come in and and the Black Rocks come in the short term rental, like isn't aren't you screwed? Well, and I say honestly, the suits don't win at this game, uh, and there's a variety of reasons. Actually, uh, there was an article about uh, I think it was like TPG who went into South Florida and started buying up homes, and then I think it was an article talking about how they 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 were going in. I think it was like five months after the fact, like they had posted, it was a big, it was a reputable source. I think it was like, I think it was like the Wall Street Journal or something. But then the next day it was another article about how they were leaving. Uh, <laughs> so like, and what I say is like, you guys, you didn't come from like the suit background, you know? Cause like a, someone who's like a major capital allocator who's done, you know, bought hundreds of millions of dollars of bonds, you know, buying, the process of buying like a hundred, $200 million of bonds is like, not a very intensive process. Like, sure, you might have like an analyst, an associate, an MD who work on it and underwrite it, but that's really it. And then you find a broker and you, whatever you you sign a paper, click a couple buttons to set up a hundred. I mean, how how if you were just to like give me a ballpark on like the total value of the houses in your portfolio at, at this point, what would it be?
1: I mean, it's going to be north of a hundred million. And you know, you hit the the nail in the coffin there with. It's a the Institutions, (laughs) yeah, it's literally brick by brick. It is one single family home at a time. And we've talked to a lot of those groups that you've mentioned, as well as a couple others, uh, you know, that are in that same breath. And they all have an interest in the space, but their preference would be to buy over build. And a lot of it is you can't build it quick enough. When you're talking about allocating 250 to 500 million, which is like really the minimum they're going to get out of bed, you couldn't deploy that quick enough. So the opportunity we have as we build is ultimately once it gets in that size range for an uh, an exit they're far more interested in just buying a stabilized portfolio. So, you know, as far as institutions entering this asset class, you could argue they're in Joshua Tree on the development side. You can argue they're in Disney on the development side. Again, a slow methodical process and very niche specific. But as far as going in and buying in, you know, Asheville or Blue Ridge or the Smokies or, you know, Austin, Texas or anything like that, like it hasn't been proven. And from the conversations we've had, we just don't see it. It's just not something that they would allocate the capital towards. But from a buy it standpoint, that's what gets them you know, most excited.
0: Got it. Okay. So for the exit opportunity, having the the size, the bigger you guys get, the better options there are from an exit perspective. But all right, let's, let's go away from the private equity, like large asset manager uh, aha, and kind of think about like a normal investor. I mean, I'll even think about like myself. Like I've learned like from you guys and what you guys do. I mean, you guys are very data-driven. Uh, every amenity you add to the properties, like there's a reason behind it. And I think like, frankly, I haven't really seen anybody else who does as many amenities to properties. So I guess I want to break into like, How should somebody think about amenities setting up their house and like the ROI? And also, like, are there specific amenities that pretty much work everywhere? Like someone has a property, a single family home in like, let's just say like a semi urban environment uh, that, you know, it's a catch all amenity that just going to work.
1: Yeah. So, you know, as far as catch all of many, I would say fire pits. Um, no doubt. Everybody likes sitting around the fire, even if you're in Florida where it is hot. Uh, where I actually I don't
0: have fire pits in my two Florida properties. I don't want to.
1: I will tell you, we we put them in every single property, regardless of location. And there's just an ROI there. It's a gathering space. You know, sales is the transfer of emotion. And what you're doing is you're convincing somebody to, you know, put their vacation dollars to use at your property. And really, you're just trying to transfer that emotion. So they see the photo of eight Adirondack chairs around the fire pit, and they can imagine their family sitting there having s'mores, talking, drinking wine, whatever it might be. That's what gets them to book. And, you know, as far as what amenities to add, you know, a simple process that I tell people, even at a, you know, one-off investor standpoint, go to the target market that you're considering pull up every listing on the first two pages of Airbnb. So do a flexible search for you know six months out on like a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So high availability. Most people probably don't have that random Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday booked. Open up every single listing and start writing down an amenities list. So listing number one that showed up first, it has hot tub, fire pit, game room. Listing number two has hot tub, game room it's lakefront, it's a mountain view, it's walking distance to the main strip of bars, whatever it is, build a commonalities list. And then once you get those first two pages, you're going to have right around 30 total listings, 30 total amenities list, figure out what the commonalities start to look like. If 28 out of 30 have a hot tub, guess what minimum table stakes are? You need a hot tub. If only two out of 30 have a hot tub, That might be an opportunity for you to differentiate because it's like, hey, there's not a lot of people that have this. And so those are things I would look at as what's the bare minimum. And you're going to find that out based on your competition, because if they're on the first two pages, they're most likely top performers for that area. So once you build that commonalities list, you'll get a good idea of what's minimum table stakes that you must have. And then start thinking of one or two things you can add to differentiate that those common ones don't have. That would be the best place to start if I was, you know, just as a one-off investor wanting to compete and add really great amenities to my property to win in my local market.
0: Got it. So, but what are so for instance, the new property I'm doing, it's not a very competitive local market. I mean, at this point, I have a couple of properties there. So I'm making it, you know, kind of like I don't want to say self-cannibalizing, but making it a more competitive market. But what I'm doing is I'm looking at just listings that I like. In different markets and trying to take inspiration and your guys are definitely some of them inspiration from, let's say the Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, pull from there and then apply it at this market. Is that is that something that's kind of like for markets that don't have as many, I call it like pros, the ones who don't have these pro properties to pull from different areas where it is more competitive?
1: No, studying similar markets is a great idea. Here's a real example. So when we were investing in Blue Ridge, Georgia, we started looking at the Smokies and movie theaters were in almost every other cabin. Like 50% of cabins had a movie theater in the Smokies. We looked at Blue Ridge and it was less than 1%. And we're like, man, it's a popular cabin market. It's driving distance to a major Metro, You know, right outside of Atlanta. Why is there no movie theaters? So we started putting movie theaters in all of our cabins and like, holy crap, it differentiated. And, and that was an idea that we took from another existing market, which is just such an easy way to win. So if you're in an urban market, go look at another similar urban market, find the top performers, find inspiration, go for it. If you're in a you know lake destination, look at another lake popular you know place. If you're in a cabin market, if you're in a beach market, because what works in the Smokies kind of works in other markets that are cabin related and so we kind of have seen more and more people start you know catching on and now movie theaters are more and more common in blue ridge and so it's a way to get ahead of everybody by just seeing what other markets are working and then implementing that and being an early adopter to it for your local place
0: yeah so the property so on wednesday i'm flying down i haven't actually been to the property since we closed on it we are adding a, a movie theater it is going to be the only movie theater. I don't think that there is another one in the market. Do you think a movie theater is one of those things that just like pretty universally works? Uh, let's just say it's a it's a city environment, but the city, you know, it's a lot of people visiting their families who moved out of the city or a lot of like soccer tournaments, like random sporting events. Would you say that? Do you think a movie theater is kind of like a catch-all amenity?
1: Yeah, I, I would say if you have a three plus bedroom and you're gonna sleep eight to sixteen, you know, plus guests, there's always gonna need to be a space for kids that's separate from the adults. If the adults are sitting around the, you know, the living room couch sipping cocktails, having fun, you don't want that to be the only sitting space because then they can't get away from the kids. They can't have that, you know, alone time. And so the kids can go into the movie theater and watch Disney Plus, Netflix, YouTube, whatever. So yeah, it, it's such a universal, you know, amenity am I putting it in a one or two bedroom that sleeps two, three, four, five, six people? Probably not. Um, you know, there I think the, the ROI might not yield you what you want, but the cost to put one in, for, you know, when you have an eight, 10, 12, 14 plus person, um, you know, occupancy is well worth it.
0: So you would say game rooms and movie theaters, pretty universal as long as it's more than three bedrooms. If you had like a five bedroom home, uh, and let's say you have a five bedroom home and a garage, that garage, you're turning that garage into a game room and then one of the rooms into a movie theater or like high level, how would you go about thinking? How do, what should I do with this space? So
1: I still think the game room over movie theater, if you had a one to one, you know, like, hey, I can only add one of these, I would never take away a bedroom because heads in beds is still going to always be a winning strategy. But I would go over a game room, it's going to occupy people longer, it's going to be more, you know, universal at the end of the day with the movie theater. The group can only watch one movie. It's not like, you know, there's five different movies for the five different kids. But if in the game room you have pool table, then you got shuffleboard, then you got arcades over here, and then you got board games, everybody can kind of do something different or four different people can get in on the doubles, you know, billiards game. So it's always going to give you a better, you know, interactive experience and hospitality with the game room. But if you have the space for both, I would add both.
0: Got it. Okay, so game room, game room. We got the garage, guys. We're converting the garage to the game room, and then we're being creative with uh, with the movie theater. So this is this is universal, relatively universal. Don't um, it's like you know how it's like you don't want to give uh, accounting advice before uh, <laughs> or you uh, have to say non-accountant. This is totally dependent on your specific property situation. Uh, however, this is probably some of the better advice that, that that you'll be hearing relative to what there is out there. Uh, so yeah, what is like, just like, what are some pro tips you have in 2024 to succeed? Maybe it's a property you already own and you're trying to maximize it. Maybe you're looking to just get into the game. Like what are, what are things that like people should be thoughtful of in order to, you know, be able to, to, to have success.
1: We really look at every square foot of the property inside and out. How can this generate additional revenue for me? And when you really think about it, it's leveraging those spaces. So if you have a family room and a living room, the most common area I see is you put a sectional in the living room and a TV, and you put a sectional in the family room and a TV. And the air there is you should convert the family room into a pool table, hangout, game room space. So you create that separation. You know, when you come into your backyard, what I see is a lot of open space. And that's typically not the way you want to do it. You want to fill the space because when people are looking at photos and they see so many different things that could occupy their family, their group of friends, their their outing, they're going to pay a higher premium for it. So when you have, you know, blank yard space, you want to fill it with things like fire pits, hot tubs, cornhole, mini putt, playgrounds. Anything that can kind of fill the space. And there's a lot of like really great things that aren't that over the top. Nothing I mentioned on there is going to cost you, you know, even depending on the size of the miniature golf, like you can get that done for as low as four grand. And obviously that can run all the way up to 10 if you're doing decked out. But, you know, playgrounds under 2000 bucks, fire pits, depending on the scale, how much stone, you know, that can be anywhere from one to 5,000, depending on again, how decked out you go, Um, you know, a little cornhole area. We're talking a couple hundred bucks. You could do giant chess, four to 600 bucks, depending on the size and the quality. So none of these are going to be like breaking the bank. They're all going to be strong ROI perspectives. But when I see blank space just sitting there, that's not generating any revenue. And that's a huge miss that a lot of people don't capitalize on when they could have filled it with a revenue generating amenity. So leverage those spaces, whether it's in the inside or the outside, we touched on the garage, we touched on that secondary living room. Those are things you want to look at is what space can be converted or added to make more money,
0: I'm actually doing my first uh, my first play structure. That is, uh, have not done that one before. I guess any tips or advice on the the play structure? Like you said, it's uh, I think it's like two thousand bucks or something. Uh, how do we optimize that for success? <laughs>
1: yeah i mean ultimately anybody with kids they've been around to several different playgrounds so when they come to yours does does mom and dad look at me like oh this thing's pretty dinky and you know my kid's not gonna like this or is this of really good quality so that's one of those that you probably don't get the cheapest one but you get one of those mid-level which you you kind of nailed the price that's where you're going to be in that you know couple thousand bucks range um it's provided a great space for kids it has a ton of options
0: you know you can get a basic I may have cheaped out. I might have to do a return. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. You don't want the one that just has a slide and two swings and that's it. You know, we like adding the ones that have like the ball, you know, the monkey bars and the little, you know, climbing area and a a net space and and two slides like those extra little things. It's going to keep the kids occupied longer, which means the parents get a more relaxing experience, which means they're more likely to write you a five star review, which means they're more likely to come back if they ever visit the area and you just keep that flywheel going with your business. Um, because you did it right. And you didn't go with the cheap route that created the bad experience and then the bad review, and then they don't come back.
0: Got it. Okay. So I cheaped out on my play structure. I should have had this call before I I, I bought or this podcast before I bought Damn. All right. Well, now I feel crappy. Uh, I guess what else? What else should I feel bad? Well, one, one thing I think you guys do a really good job. And I think you touched on this is like separating the spaces. Like in your guys' backyards, you do a really good job of Essentially, using string, I would say, like, using string lights and gravel to make it feel like everything, like, it's just not a big grass backyard with everything just like sprawled out, you know, next to each other. It's this space over here, it has, is encircled by string lights. This, uh, this, uh, fire pit is encircled by string lights. This, uh, cornhole area is like in a little squ- string light square. Like, you guys really, are artists with string lights in order to create the different areas. Is that, is there some sort of science or thought behind, am I, am I, am I onto something there? Is that, yeah, is that
1: you, you, you are definitely on there. It's, it's an intentional use of space. You can tell when you show up to a property, even as a guest, like if I'm, if I'm staying as a personal Airbnb guest at somebody's property, if they just threw the amenities in the yard on the grass, you can tell, but if it's intentional with walkways, gravel, or how we'll do like, we'll enclose that area. So the cornhole area, it's not just two cornhole boards in the yard, but they're kind of like enclosed with some string lights or some structures or some posts, or, you know, whether it's the the, the chess or the, the fire pit area, it's all intentional and, and it creates that experience. It gives it a higher, you know, luxury feel so that you can charge a higher ADR. So you're absolutely right. As far as bang for the buck, and and you said string lights multiple times, so we might as well get into it. I can't think of something more efficient use of my dollar than string lights, depending on where you're at, at least locally here. They're they're typically about a dollar a foot. So a 25-foot strand is typically running about 25 bucks. I mean, obviously, hey, you can get the crazier light bulb ones, the the cheaper ones. But if you're in that $25 to $50 range for a 25-foot area, which is just absolutely massive, I mean, you—it would be hard-pressed to spend over three hundred dollars in string lights to fill your entire yard. To me, it's the best thing when you take those nighttime photos, those sunset photos. It sets the mood. To me, it's the lowest-hanging fruit you could do for your property is add string lights. And you know, a common thing in mountain markets is you put them along the railing. So if you have a two-tier deck, mm-hmm. um, the mistake I see is people cheap out—they just run string lights on the bottom deck or the top. Put them on both. You know, it's going to look way better in your photos. Not everybody's going to only be on the top deck or only on the bottom deck. Put them across all the railings, all the opportunities. Those are the things that are going to take your property and push it over the edge that the common investor just isn't doing today.
0: Yeah. And that's actually one of the things. So, so this like off season, I'm trying to refresh some of our properties. What I'm doing is I bought four hot tubs. I'm pretty much adding a hot tub to each lake house that doesn't already have one. I feel like hot tubs used to be like, um, I I think there's like, there's like checklist amenities, like things that you need. And then there's like over the top amenities, like things that nobody in your market has that they're going to pick you over everybody else because you offer this one thing. I feel like in the off season in like, I don't know, this is my take. So if you have a different opinion, I'd love to hear it. But like, if you're not an extremely urban market, your winter is going to be screwed unless you have a hot tub pretty much at this point.
1: Yeah. With the cold weather, the, the thought is, how do you extend the season? And you know, you can extend it by providing opportunities where they can still enjoy themselves in a different way. So obviously, if it's cold outside, you can enjoy yourself with the hot tub. If you have an indoor pool or an indoor gathering space, you know, all those things matter, especially when the weather does get colder for you to extend the season so that you can drive more revenue for your property than your competition.
0: Got it. So, and hot tub is one of those things. But what what, what I'm also doing is uh, adding string lights to pretty much every property. I I, I usually would used to buy like the 50 feet of string lights and maybe do it over the fire pit or kind of like do it in one place. But no, 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 that's not enough. We got we to gotta pimp out <laughs> everything with string lights. We need them on the top of the decks. We need them on the bottom of the decks, the walkways, you know, because I have like, w- even if it's just grass, you know, put it in the grass just to like kind of make it, yeah, some like intentionality. But yeah, trying to get my landscaper to get on board with the plan because I'm not actually doing any of this, frankly. Uh, I'm, I'm remote, but I got to convince people, hey, we're putting up posts everywhere and doing a bunch of string lights and not going to lie, it might be a little bit uh, difficult to really rally behind that if you don't, if you don't see the why. Uh, but also like just gravel, um, you know, also gravel is just you know, areas where the grass isn't growing or the grass kind of just looks crappy, just gravel it. You know, it just, the gravel is clean. You don't really have to do much uh, upkeep on it. Uh, So I see, I'm assuming that's the reason you guys do gravel a lot too, is then you don't have to pay a a lawnmower to go back there. Am I wrong in that assumption? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah.
1: you save in OPEX. uh, So ultimately, yeah, it's like, hey, does it look aesthetically good? But then also, does it help you keep your costs in line from an operational standpoint, from a cash flow standpoint? You know, another thing you could point to is turf. You know, I mean, roughly turfs running about nine to 11 bucks a foot, you know, all in that's, you know, labor installation, et cetera. So, you know, it can be pricier, especially if you have a 20 by 20 space and you're talking 4Gs, um, yeah. To turf it. But again, it's a low maintenance. Are you going to hold this for 10 years? Do you never want to deal with it? It also will give you a higher end look. Like turf does give you a more classy look than grass. You don't risk it getting brown and getting a bad review. So, you know, we're, you know, we definitely integrate turf. It's not universal, it's not every property, but you, you can kind of tell when it's a good opportunity to turf this section. And then, same thing, you can amenitize that turf area by putting giant chests cornhole, you know, you know, connect four, et cetera. And now you filled that space. You could do a little soccer area, put a soccer net up. People can kick, run, sit, you could put loungers there. There's so much flexibility with turf compared to grass that it's a really good opportunity to, to leverage. And, you know, to us in most cases that $10 a foot, you know, what it averages out to is well worth putting it in, in, in your yard space.
0: Have a look into the permeability requirements.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah I mean it's definitely going to vary by location obviously hey you know you know the local local rules local municipalities is you know definitely some nuance there but whenever that opportunity presents itself it, we, we typically find that it is worth it.
0: yeah, I just had that that issue. I'm, I don't want to keep ripping on Florida but yeah I had that I uh, learned about permeability rules and turf and whatnot I'm like what what is that what's a permeability rule like what but apparently that's a thing. Uh, <laughs> and turf is not impermeable. Somehow, water doesn't get through. I guess it like stays on top. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, the, the, there's a lot of porous ones now, so it's pretty pretty shocking um, that you know there. It's definitely the technology has gotten way better from five years ago, ten years ago. Um, but yeah, it's definitely become a better solution. Um, and I know uh, new construction in like Phoenix, Arizona, um, you're required to put it in. You can't you can't go grass anymore. So. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah exactly Oh yeah and and you know it's uh, you know the upkeep, the watering et cetera. So yeah that's uh, all new construction product I think as of 22 or 23 in, in Phoenix Scottsdale has to be turfed or gravel. It's your only choice.
0: Got it guys so looking we're looking at turf gravel, all the amenities if you guys go back through the podcast and just literally write down every single one of these amenities that Taylor spoke of today the the big chess play structures send me the list uh take notes for me so then i can i can then implement these at my properties uh but yeah what other yeah, what is like yeah what is your biggest uh what's your biggest pro tip i like to ask everybody what's what's your biggest pro tip uh for a short-term rental investors and actually i want to i want to backtrack a little bit how do you guys operate 125 properties and like make sure that they're in good shape and that you know the the swing doesn't have like a piece of metal or you know like just some that these amenities don't start withering
1: it's a lot of sops on the back end a lot of tech so for us we're constantly refining these you know standard operating procedures and you know that's the cleaning and maintenance team that's going in and logging pictures so for us um we're getting photos after every turnover after every walkthrough, if there's a gap, and we're going to have a maintenance tech go in and you know tighten all the screws, you know make sure the light bulbs are working. The you know the outdoor bowling does in fact have ten pins because if one's missing, the guest is going to be like, hey, I can't play this amenity correctly. So in order to keep tabs on that, we've standardized it with a lot of tech on the back end and getting photos of every space, every amenity. We're also providing a checklist for those cleaners to make sure and the maintenance staff. Hey, please make sure that there is twenty-two pieces for the chest. Make sure that there is 10 pins for the bowling you know if it's ping pong you need at least two paddles there you know so people can play together the the billiards needs 10 uh no no 15 you know it needs to fit the triangle etc so we we haven't been as clean as we are today, and we'll still continue to get better. We are not perfect, and you know our checklist gets more in depth. We continue to add new stuff to it. We're continuing to refine our process, but you know, in order to maintain the quality at scale as we continue to grow it is a ton of tech, a ton of standard operating procedures to make sure that we're accounting for everything. And then our team is looking at it on the back end. Obviously we're you know fully remote to these properties, but we're able to make sure everything's there. And if something's missing, we have a process in place to get it replenished in a timely manner.
0: You guys have walmart.com and amazon.com, uh, prime <laughs> that's, uh, get it, get it there, uh, to the same day shipping or tomorrow. Okay. So that's interesting. And I think, uh, sabrina's kind of the operations uh that's kind of her her oh, absolutely her woods.
1: yeah certainly you'll you'll have a blast if you want to dive into some of the ops world uh she can she can really have a, a lot of fun there i i tend to stay uh, stay out of that not not my cup of tea but
0: yeah that's, i would say that's your, world. your world's more fun Pick, picking the toys and <laughs> <laughs> that's that's admittedly the world i enjoy more and then you know as the portfolio scales it becomes if you manage your own portfolio it becomes a little bit, yeah, the operations having a, someone local who'll like go by and have cause the issue is like what I've seen is like you can you can give people the lists and tell them to check stuff. But like if they just there's gonna be things that they just have to use their eyes for. You know? Like just look around. Like look around the place. Like what's like notice things <laughs> like like yeah. oh there's a hole in the wall. Like Yeah we, we need to, to we like, need
1: to open up? we need to open our eyes so we can see this.
0: Yeah, exactly. And but that's I mean, finding the right team members in different locations is just like so so crucial, especially when you don't want to have to like go to use property, you know, once every two or three months, which at scale is logistically impossible. So or just not even what you want to be doing with your time. So all right, so everyone you're in for a treat, uh, talking to Sabrina later, but Taylor is the king of Twitter. He shares tons of gems information every day. How can folk find you if they want to learn from uh, learn from your knowledge and experiences?
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, post a lot of content on on Twitter, X, uh, you know, at Mr. Jones, SDRs. Um, started growing on LinkedIn as well. Just, you know, Taylor Jones. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe I, I might come join the short form video, uh, Instagram, TikTok, uh, YouTube world here soon. <laughs> so uh, it's on the list to, to try to get more active on those. But for now, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of content, a lot of copywriting. So, you know, Twitter, X, LinkedIn uh, is really where I'm at.
0: Got it. And then also, I'm gonna backtrack a little bit here because I'm curious. So interest rates are getting higher, but you guys keep buying. Like, what is? Do you have like kind of a rough like analysis or estimate on properties that like kind of what's your like quick pencil math on what makes a good uh, short-term rental investment or not?
1: Yeah, this one's always going to be ever evolving, but we always look at what's the price to rent ratio. So in in essence, what's the rental revenue divided by purchase price, and you're going to get a percentage. And depending on where interest rates are at, you know, for us, our qualification is that's going to be anywhere from like 17% all the way up to like, hey, it needs to be north of 20. So on a property that, you know, the purchase price is 500 grand, a 20% price to rent ratio would mean you generate 100 grand in revenue on it. So 100 grand divided by 500 gives you 20%. Because if you backdoor math out all your OPEX, utilities, household supplies, property management, maintenance, upkeep, landscaping, etc is there enough margin left over? Well, I don't have to underwrite a, you know, 12% price to rent ratio meaning if the property's 500 grand it's going to grow 60, I don't need to underwrite that because if I go through and underwrite it, that deal's going to be shit. You know, and for me, um, that's kind of the tough part is like hey, we don't, you know, we know where that needs to be. And that's for us what we need to make sure we're hitting. So the envelope math, depending on where interest rates are, you know, high, low and different is going to be somewhere between that 17 to 20 percent price to rent ratio minimum that we're going to need to hit.
0: And, and how much for, a, let's say, a 500K house that's going to pull in 100K of revenue, like how much would you anticipate spending on like amenitizing it?
1: Yeah, I mean, us going over the top, you know, which is a hedge and a protectant. Um, between all amenities, furniture, decor, you know, stocking the property, we're typically probably coming in, you know, right around that 15 to 20% mark. So, you know, somewhere in that, you know, 75 to 100. But again, that's going to include all the furnishings, all the decor, you know, we do tons of wallpaper, um, murals, the amenities, the renovations, um, so that's going to be really our like out the door FF is typically somewhere in that 15 to 20% range, you know, but again, we're doing everything necessary to make it a top performer. And that's really what it's going to take from a capital standpoint.
0: Got it. Okay. So that's hundred K, but then that hundred K is going to produce, high, you know, it's going to return on itself fairly, fairly quickly. Whereas if you don't spend that money, then the drag on your, uh, your interest and, and mortgage and whatnot is, is high. So it's worth spending up front in order to, uh, out return in the long run is kind of the way you guys look at it.
1: Yeah. It's also going to give you a hedge and a downturn. So, you know, what I would say is like people still travel, you know, um, yeah. maybe the bottom of the barrel. So, you know, people more budget conscious don't, but wealthy people still travel. They might change their habits. They're maybe not flying to you know Europe anymore. Europe. Yeah. So when you're highly amenitized, you still get booked. Now, maybe instead of 500 a night, you're at 400 a night, but guess what? You still got booked. The bottom of the barrel sits vacant. And if yeah. you aren't amenitized or designed well, you run that risk in a recession. For us, we're not as worried about a downturn. We know we're still going to continue to get booked. Yes, our insane ADRs might come down to, you know, quote unquote, normal levels. But if it's affecting us, it's going to affect everybody. So for us, we want to weather that downturn. We want to still generate a profit. Yes, it might not be an insane profit, but when things pick up, we'll continue to boost our ADRs and continue to be in a good position to cash flow for us and our investors.
0: Yeah. Well, Andrew, I don't know what you know how it works with uh, debt financing and stuff, but if stuff we really do hit a big downturn and your ADRs, I'm assuming that would also correspond with lower interest rates to refinance at. So, and then also probably on the back end, a lot of the people would leave. A lot of people would leave. A lot of the Uncle Bobs would would just exit. And then once you know you hit the upswing again, you're you're going to be one of the only ones left sitting there, able to capture again those higher ADRs, and then having refinanced, uh, to a lower interest rate, uh, in this quote unquote, like worst case scenario. So in the worst case scenario, it's not actually all that bad. Uh, uh, okay, cool. So yeah, what is your, what is your, uh, I know I touched on this before, but last thing I'd like to always ask is what is your biggest pro tip?
1: Biggest pro tip is professional photography. I think it's the lowest hanging fruit. When we're comping, when we're sourcing, when we're underwriting on a daily basis, I'm typically seeing anywhere from 50 to hundred different listings across the country. And it is absolutely crazy what photography does to a listing. Even if you're not highly designed, even if you're not highly amenitized, professional photography is massive. Critical air people make is... I see the listings and I'm like, man, is this home listed for sale? Like, is this on the MLS? Because they took, they got real estate photography. There is a huge difference between short-term rental or Airbnb photography and real estate photography. It has to do with a lot of like how the rooms are captured, the wide lens, the narrow, etc. But you can just see this home looks like it's listed for rent and that's the, or, or listed for sale. And that's kind of the vibe that a lot of listings give because they hired a real estate photographer who's taking photos as if the home was going to be listed on the MLS. The problem is that doesn't transfer emotion. I, I want to, I want a short-term rental photographer, an Airbnb one who can get that transfer of emotion. Again, like we talked about sales is just the transfer of emotion. I want those photos to give that family, you know, that emotional connection to be like, man, I can see ourselves in that garage that was converted to a game room. I could see ourselves in that living room. I could see ourselves enjoying time in the pool or the hot tub. And if you can't convey that emotion, you're not going to get booked. But you know photography is such a huge opportunity. And I think a lot of people don't invest in it. I'll tell you frankly, we get a ton of properties reshot. You know What ends up happening is even our core photographers sometimes miss in our markets. And so we're having to get a second photographer out there. And then you have to look and be like, okay, who shot the living room better? Photographer A or B, let's take A's. Who did the kitchen better? Maybe it's B's. And yeah, people might, you know, roll their eyes and be like, oh, well, you're spending $800 instead of 400 on photography. But if I'm going to go drive 8,000 more in revenue because I got way better photos, the cost of photography is negligible. And so for us, investing in that great photography is worth every penny. You know, we would, uh, we, we joked, we would pay $2,000 for photography if we guaranteed it would be perfect every time. It, it's worth that cost that people just don't realize it. So that, that is my huge pro tip
0: yeah and, and photographers who can photoshop in the uh, the fire and the fire pit and can do the little yeah the twilights get the little you know create the different yeah motions you talked about of daytime versus nighttime uh, i actually would love to hear your thoughts uh, i know we're kind of wrapping up here but i have uh, i talked to someone yesterday so i told you like a couple of the properties are some of the properties i set up 2 3 years ago i just you know they're pretty blank canvases white walls like pretty clean pretty minimalist pretty modern but definitely not like the interiors don't like stand out, you know, like the exteriors, you know, whether it, maybe they're lake houses, mountain houses, they have, you know, the, the views or the water. So like, obviously those stand out, but what I'm trying to I just have someone go, they're actually from Florida. Uh, they potentially would drive up, start in my what like smoky mountains properties, go towards like my central North Carolina properties and end at like the lake houses and just mural, 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 uh, like essentially just, wall wall add color to this wall add color to this wall paint this wall mural mural and just go one house at a time and like do three walls in each house do you think that makes sense <laughs> do you think that's yeah worthwhile?
1: Uh, no so uh, a big proponent of uh, murals and or wallpaper uh i i, yeah. I mean, wallpaper is making a massive comeback we do bright bold colors especially in florida especially in arizona we started even integrating up at in the northeast and you know cabin markets as well um white drywalls or people putting a frame up is really a thing of the past and you know you can see it's boring it needs life um creative colors murals um wallpaper we're we're all in on uh wallpaper is sneakily expensive um
0: but to get someone to do the wallpaper is actually insanely expensive
1: yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. Finding the right person who can put it up correctly and make sure it doesn't get, you know, ruined or fall down or have bubbles. Um, yeah, it's definitely not easy, but because so few people do it, it's something that we continue to do because we see that there's so much opportunity for it.
0: I'm actually, one of the reasons I'm going down this weekend to look at this house is because I'm meeting with someone to do the wallpaper. And I was like, if I can actually get a wallpaper person, because like I've tried, like the last house I did, I bought a bunch of, I probably spent, yeah, $2,000 on wallpaper. And it was like the, the middle of peak season and tried putting it up on one wall. and was like, holy shit, this is I don't know. This is not working. All right. We got to get this thing rented. Like, you know, we, we have big bookings that we're missing. I'm going to go deal with this wallpaper thing later. Put it put it in the owner's closet. But now I'm like, actually like, oh, we found someone we found, like we hit the lottery. So I'm Here we go. like, I got to go there and see this, 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 uh, these people, because they're like, they're like seven, they're like seven weeks booked out to do wallpaper, like wallpaper, people are apparently like neurosurgeons, like they're the most high demand uh, people in the world. I mean, you guys have the economies of scale. So I guess you guys have your plug. But uh, this is this is new. So, yeah, I have a wallpaper person I'm trying to meet. And then I was talking to a a muralist just to like between the two of them, just refresh uh, as like high ROI refresh as possible without like, you know, just dealing with the walls and then worrying about the furniture later. I guess you is that an approach that you recommend for kind of hosts in my situation who? Uh,
1: Absolutely. Add pops of color. Easiest way to stand out. Everybody else has boring white walls uh, of some sort or even just, you know, single tone add murals add wallpaper easy way to differentiate easy way to win
0: and then do you think timelessness like is that like some five years from now it's like damn wallpaper people uh, people did wallpaper damn we got to redo it again <laughs> like do you think uh
1: i think if it fits what you're going for the house um you know if you're blending in a tropical feel if it's pops of color all the way around people are going to always want it Um, You know, kind of the good news is when you're booking a vacation, you kind of want it to be different than what your house is. And so if people are going with white and minimalist looks, they want that experience. So I don't don't think that's going to run out. You know, I don't see people doing bold pops of wallpaper in their primary residence. So, you know, if that was the case, then they would look at this and like, man, we want something different. We want white minimalist. We want plain. I just don't see it. I think more people are putting in the minimalist look in their primary house. So having those bold pops of color is a great escape and a change of pace when they're on their two day, three day, four day vacation.
0: It's funny as you say that, as I look at my fiance is putting a duck, mini duck wallpaper in our bathroom and uh, she's wallpapering uh, a lot of the apartment. (laughs) Uh, So some people, some people like the wallpaper. Some are.
1: Some (laughs) are not, not everybody though. So that's, that's the good news.
0: Exactly. Awesome. Well, Taylor, man, it's been an absolute pleasure. Finally, uh, I've seen a lot of your, your written stuff. So putting a putting a voice to the face or to the to the to the Mr. Jones has been an absolute pleasure. And then yeah, for those follow you on Twitter, LinkedIn, and then also give uh, Mr. Jones, he, he we're gonna hold him. Uh, I've been like kind of like uh, trying to a little bit of accountability with folk on LinkedIn posting just because I think LinkedIn just brings like high level good people. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to just be con- consistent there, but are, are you going to commit to being uh, consistent with, uh, videos and stuff in short form? <laughs> I, I
1: am, I am, I'm actually taking a, uh, a guide course on how to get better. So I, I, needed to go through my four weeks training, uh, so I can, you know, better understand and, uh, yeah, I can, uh, I can definitely commit to it for 2024.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm excited for that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Taylor, for joining today and everybody stay tuned for the next episode of the short-term rental pros podcast. Thanks for listening to the Short-Term Rental Pros Podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, leave us a five-star rating. Like, comment, and share this with someone you know that wants to invest in short-term rentals.